right, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. So for those who are new this morning, we've been studying the book of Ephesians. We've been reading through Ephesians. And Ephesians is a tour of heaven, essentially. So right from the beginning, Paul just jettisons us right up into the heavenlies, and we begin to see things from God's perspective. Begin to see what we look like from heaven's perspective, what the lost looks like from heaven's perspective, what a saint looks like from heaven's perspective, what Christ looks like now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God. And Paul has been our tour guide, the Apostle Paul. And I wonder if it's been from experience. The, the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians that Paul at one time was taken up into the third heaven, so I don't know if he's just completely writing from actual experience or just from revelation of the Spirit. But it's been exciting, nonetheless, to go through Ephesians and read. And it's been really rich for me. I know it's been rich for me. I hope it's been really rich for you, too. It's all about grace. Ephesians is divided up into two major sections. The first section of Ephesians is doctrinal. And we're about to end that section this morning. So we're actually in our last scripture reading of the first doctrinal section. That's the end of chapter 3. There's six chapters in Ephesians. The first three are largely doctrinal, and there's practical things in there. And the latter three are practical, though there's doctrinal things in there too. We're about to end that this morning. And uh, we'll, we'll read it, and then I'll make a few comments about it before we begin looking in detail at the verses. So we're going to start in verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter, verse 21. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be the glory in the church, by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom and revelation this morning as we look at this passage, this very famous passage. And Lord, that you would indeed do what Paul prays for this morning in us. That you would help us to comprehend the love of Christ that you have. And Lord, only you by your Holy Spirit can show us that. And I pray you would pour out your Spirit, Lord, and, and do a mighty thing this morning in our hearts. That you might be glorified and no one else. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, like I said, this is the end of the doctrinal section. And he actually comes full circle so if you remember, Ephesians chapter 1 begins with a burst of praise. It begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in heavenly places. So Paul begins with a hymn of praise. He begins by praising God in Ephesians 1 verse 3. And he ends in the same way. So this section comes in a circle. It ends with a doxology. It ends with, Unto him be glory and praise. And also, he mentions the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ again in verse 14, you'll notice. So he starts by saying, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends by bowing his knees before the same Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying that the saints would know the love of Christ, and then ends with a hymn of praise. So there's a real clear end to this section. A very clear division in the epistle. Now, Paul pauses to pray once again. I mentioned that before. But he actually paused at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1. You'll notice the exact same phrase. 
that you find in verse 14, and it's the same in the Greek also. Paul says, for this cause, and he gets sidetracked for the next 13 verses, and he picks up that for this cause again in verse 14. So for this cause, what, or for this reason, where was, what was Paul talking about that prompted him to move into this prayer? Because he pauses to pray. And it's not the contents of chapter 3, but it's really the last contents of chapter 2, where Paul wanted to start praying at that point. And if you remember, at the end of chapter 2, Paul was talking about how God was building a temple. He was building a temple, and the temple was made up of people. The temple is made up of living stones, as Peter puts it, living stones. That's you and I. It is the believers in Jesus. And so we talked about that week how the church isn't just merely people who believe in Christ and have been justified by faith. That is true. The church is made up of people who believe in Christ and are justified by faith. But the essence and the purpose of the church, what the church is, is a temple. Figuratively, figuratively speaking, it's a, a building, a spiritual building that God dwells in and that worships God and has fellowship with God and instructs the nations. That's what the church is. And so God is building a church using living stones, using people, using people like you and people like me. And he even says he's using Jews and Gentiles. Whereas in the past, the Jews thought they were the only ones who would be involved in this church. The church isn't an exclusively New Testament term, but it's been taken on new meaning in the New Testament. But the, the Jews thought, yeah, we are the people of God. We are the ones only who will be a light to the nation in whom God will dwell with us. We are his people. And we only. Paul said there was a great mystery hidden from before the foundation of the world that God would include the Gentiles into the church. And Jews and Gentiles together would make up this beautiful building. And it's a mystery. And Paul actually is a prisoner as he writes this, le this letter. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul says, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. So this vision of Jews and Gentiles being one in the church, as God's temple, put Paul in prison. That was the reason why he was in prison. And it, it's a radical thing. It's a very radical thing. There's a lot of radical things about Christianity that the, most people don't like. You have to face that as Christians. Things we believe, whether it be Jews and Gentiles being one, in Paul's day, that was so radical, they put him in prison. Today, we're a bit used to that fact. But there's things that we believe today that are so radical that, I mean, as we've been talking about earlier, people get killed for it in Somalia and all over the world. People get killed for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not just that Jews and Gentiles are one that's radical, but even that Jews and Gentiles both are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and not by their works. That's radical. That was another reason why Paul was persecuted too and why we get persecuted today for believing that. Because we essentially say all other religions that tell you that you need to do these rules and keep these things in order to be right with God, we're saying they're wrong. God says that that's wrong. Because if that's true, if you are right with God by following these rules and keeping these commandments and, and doing good things, then what did Jesus die for? That's the point in Galatians. He said, if righteousness comes by law, then Christ died for nothing. And so what we preach is that Jesus died for our sins and that we're right by him and him alone. By his death and his death alone, we're right with God and not by anything else. Otherwise, he wouldn't have died. It would have come through those other things. So again, radical. We'll put people in prison. We preach the things that prophets get killed for. This is what we preach. Paul prays. He pauses to pray. At the end of talking, after talking about that temple, he pauses to pray. And we've already seen Paul pause to pray already. So this is his second prayer in Ephesians. The first prayer is in chapter 1, verse 15. Starting in verse 15, at least, is where he pauses. And here's one difference between his two prayers. The first one, if you notice, he prays that we might have our eyes open to know what we have in Christ. So he prays that our eyes would be open, that God would give us the Spirit to see what we have. 
the riches of the inheritance, the hope that we have, the power that works in us and toward us. That's what he pauses to pray for. So it's more what, because he's talking about that in chapter one. Blessed be God who's blessed us with all these blessings, this package. I'm explaining it to you. May God open your eyes so you can see what it is. And in this prayer, the second prayer, he doesn't stop to say what. This time he's, he pauses to pray, God, open their eyes that they might know why you've done this for them. Not necessarily open their eyes to show them what's going on, but why God has done this for them. Why? And I think it's because he's just, he's gone to the heights. He's talked about how you had no hope, you Ephesians in particular. Before you were in Christ, you had no hope. You had nothing. You were without God. And now look where you are. This this wonderful blessing that you've been blessed with in Christ, freely. But look how you were once pagans and you once had no hope. You didn't even know God. You were without the church and now you're in. Now you're a place where God dwells and now you're the people of God and now you're blessed and forgiven. And now seeing this, seeing this transformation, he's, he, God opened their eyes that they might see why. That they might understand who you are, God, and your love for them. That's the essence of the prayer. And one more thing, or two more things I'll note about this prayer is that it ascends like a staircase. So Paul builds, it builds on itself, you'll notice. As he says, I pray, I pray that you would grant them that they would be, that they would see, that they would be, that you'd be glorified. It ascends, it builds on itself. And we'll look in, at that in detail in just a moment. Another thing I'll notice, I'll point out, and I think Brad, you'll appreciate this, but this is a prayer for the corporate body of believers. This isn't just an individual prayer. Um, as you read this prayer, it is applied to you as an individual, but more than that, he's praying for the, the body together, that God would grant you, in, in, and that's you not just as an individual, but you as, a, as the people, as God's people. You'll notice in verse 17, he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts. He's talking plural there. He's saying, I'm praying, he's praying for them plural, okay? And sometimes we read the Bible very individualistically, and that's okay, because it does apply to you as an individual. It's not merely individual, that's the thing. So there's an important thing to see later in the prayer. It requires seeing it as a corporate vision, because if you see it just as an individual thing, you can get a little confused. So Paul is praying for the the whole group of the Ephesians, and really for the whole family of God in this prayer. So, for this cause, for this cause, I already said there was a temple being built, and now he stops to pray so that they might know the love that God has for them. And let me just make this comment first, that the temple is to fill, be filled with the fullness of God. It's to contain him. And... This prayer is that we might know his love, that we might know the love of Christ. And by knowing the love of Christ, we fulfill that purpose of the temple, by knowing the love of Christ. He's going to talk about that more. But he's like, there's this temple being built, and you're a part of it. And so I want you to know the love of Christ. Because the essence of that temple, the essence of the worship, the essence of the communion of that temple between God and his people is that they know his love that they respond to that love and they know it. He bows his knees. For this cause, he bows his knees. Paul prays. And just a brief comment on prayer. Why does Paul pray? Because he already knows God is going to fulfill his purposes and plans. God, Paul knows God's not going to fail. So why do we pray? Why do we pray about anything, really? Now, what is prayer when we know that God's sovereign and God's will is always accomplished? And Paul knows this. But one thing we realize is that prayer isn't twisting God's arm. When we pray, 
We're not trying to make God do something that he doesn't want to do. Do you ever feel like that when you pray? Do you ever feel like you're, you're trying to convince God to do something that he doesn't want to do? <laughs> you ever feel that way? I suggest if you pray that way, your prayer is probably not going to be answered. Now, God maybe might answer. I'm not going to say that dogmatically, but it probably won't be. Because John says we pray according to his will. So when we pray, we're entering into his will. We're praying because we believe that God is willing to do this. Not because he's not willing. God, you know, twist your arm. We believe God is willing, and therefore we pray. We pray. Not to twist his arm. It's getting involved in God's will. And I think that God, his will is to do certain things, but he, he waits for us to ask him. You know, it's not that we're twisting his arm because we want him to do something he doesn't want to do. He wants to do it. He just waits for us to ask him. I'm not a father. I'm sure fathers can understand or mothers can understand. It's not that you don't want to do something sometimes, but maybe you, you want to do it, but you just wait for your kid to ask. You want the child to to believe your willingness and to come to you and to believe your ability also. So Paul believes God is willing and able and he's doing this, and so he prays. And we see this, an example of this throughout the Bible. We see, um, if you remember in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles pray, that wonderful evangelistic prayer, God, stretch forth your hand, do signs and wonders, and Turn people to Christ. They're not trying to twist his arm. That's, they see very clearly this is what God is up to. This is what God is into. God is doing this. But they enter in. Okay, God, you're willing, you're able, let's do it. Help us, God. We want to get involved. We ask you, God, to stretch forth your hand and, and declare your word and confirm your word. And what happened was the ground shook, it says, in Acts 4. There was a a shaking of the ground, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God was, you could just see God, like with the ground shaking and being filled with the Holy Spirit, is like God just wants to bless them. God just wants to pour it out on them. Just wait until they asked, and he just did it. Or in Daniel, if you remember in the Old Testament, Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah, he realizes that the 70 years are just about up. And the prophet, the God has spoken by the prophet that after 70 years, Babylon will, they will be, they will be free. They will go back. The Jews were exiled to Babylon after 70 years. The prophet said they'd go back to the land. Daniel saw it. He wasn't twisting God's arm when he prayed in Daniel 9, the great, the great intercessory prayer there, because he knew this is what was going to happen, and yet he, he got on his knees and prayed. God, fulfill your word. God, I ask you, do what you said you're going to do. Do what you're willing to do. Do what you're able to do. He enters in. This is God's desire and prayer. So when we pray, when you pray, and maybe one of the reasons why we struggle in prayer is because we have that wrong understanding of prayer. We think that, man, I'm trying to twist God's arm and he never listens, so why should I pray anyway? But maybe we should base our prayers upon the word of God. Okay, God, you say in your word, A, B, or C. I'm going to get on my knees and pray, A, B, or C, according to your will and believe you that you're willing and able to do this. This is why Paul prays. He also talks about the family. So I already mentioned that he says, I, who does he pray to? The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one he already blessed in chapter 1. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of whom, this Father, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now there's a play on words here you can't see in the English, but... Father in the Greek is pater, and family is patria. So there's a play on words. I, I pray to the pater for the whole patria, that's what he says. It's, the, it's all those whose common father is, is you, God. The whole family on heaven and earth, all those people whose common, we have a common father. We have a common lineage. I don't believe that this refers to angels, where it says, where the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Some might believe that. 
But I believe when it says the whole family in heaven and earth is named, it, often when we think of heaven, we just think of angels. Okay, there's the angels in heaven and there's the people on the earth. We're, our view of the church is so limited if we think that way. Because when we think heaven, there is probably more Christians in heaven than on earth right now. And when we think of the family in heaven, do we just think of angels? Do we not think that our brothers and sisters who have passed on are, are alive? They're there. They're our family. They're just as much a part of us as we are of each other. Just because they've passed on, we don't believe death is the end. We believe they're asleep. God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. So, the whole family, one of our desire here for All Saints Church is to have a vision of all the saints together. And that doesn't just mean this little group right here on Sunday morning. That doesn't just mean the the group of Christians here in Cache Valley or the group of Christians in the United States of America or even the group of Christians all around the world, but the group of Christians in heaven and in earth, John Bunyan, or all those nameless saints who've gone, who've passed on. They're your family in heaven. And so when you think of heaven, don't just immediately think angels. But think of all those family members you have yet to meet. And when you meet them, it'll be a wonderful family reunion in heaven. The, the patria, those who've been born again by the Spirit of God and have one common Father. And it's important to see this, this larger picture of the church as in heaven and earth because Hebrews tells us that without them, we're not perfect. And without us, they're not perfect. So we, it's not that God wants to see us to see the church. It, it, it's not enough just to see your own place in it. What is, it, what is a building half constructed? You know? What if all we thought about was my stone or my neighbor's stone and I? There's a whole building, and if the whole building's not there, the whole, it's not complete. So God wants us to have a big vision. We're a part of something huge huge, spans the ages. Right back to the creation. And another thing he says here about the family is it's named after God. The whole family in heaven and earth is named, verse 15. And that's a beautiful thing Paul says here. That it's named. Because just he's just going off the rich theology of the Old Testament where it talks about God places his name upon his people. They're marked by him. They're known as his. JFB commentary, that's Jameson Fawcett Brown's commentary, says to bear God's name is to belong to God and to be his own peculiar people. It marks you as his people and it marks the place of God's presence also. It marks the place of God's presence. Where God places his name is where God is and what belongs to him. So Paul says the whole family, including the Gentiles in this when he says that. It's an amazing thing. Look at with me Isaiah 43. If Paul says, the apostle says here, that you and I are named after God the Father, I want you to notice a few things in the, in the Old Testament and the significance of being named after God. If you're a Christian, you're named, you're marked. And this is what it means. Now apply this to yourself, okay? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1, verse 7, and verse 21. Because this whole chapter is about it, but I'm just going to grab three little verses throughout it. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Look what it says about the name. But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by, my, by thy name, you are mine. And verse 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him, 
for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Now it's talking about Israel, but the Gentiles are now included in this. He's formed you for his glory if he's called you by his name. In verse 21, this people, now this sounds like Ephesians, this people have I formed for myself that they shall show forth my praise. It is a high calling to be called by the name of God, to be born again and to have God include you into his family. That's a high call. It's a privilege and it's a calling. And the two go together. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That's the privilege. So that we might show forth his praise. That's the calling. And you can't show forth his praise unless you've been blessed. But the Jews thought this only applied to them. The Old Testament spoke of how the Gentiles would also be called by God's name. If you look at Isaiah 65, verse 1, very briefly. Isaiah 65, verse 1. And this is the secret that Paul, that was opened up to Paul. It says in Isaiah 65, verse 1, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me, unto a nation that was not called by my name. So God says, behold me, to a nation not called by his name. Behold me, or know who I am. Amos chapter 9, Amos is in the Minor Prophets. And this is a very famous passage in the Old Testament that um, the Apostle James actually quotes at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 to settle this question of the Jews and the Gentiles. Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Notice what it says here. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Isn't that amazing? Now that, this was a radical thing in those days to get this. For a Jew to, to read that, the heathen that are called by my name. What? Now they, they saw that, but they didn't know how that worked. They didn't understand that the Gentiles would be grafted into Israel. They always thought the Jews would always remain separate and just be a light to the Gentiles and perhaps give the Gentiles light and bless the Gentiles from a distance. But they never saw that the Gentiles would actually come and be a part of the people of God, be called by the name, or at least what that meant, the actual engrafting, the unity between Jew and Gentile. And so this is what Paul says back in Ephesians. He's praying for this whole family in heaven and earth, Jews and Gentiles that are called by God's name, created for God to sound forth God's glory and his praise. Now here's what he prays for them. We haven't got to this yet, now we do. The first step in our staircase of prayer this is what Paul prays for them, how it begins. Verse 16, Paul prays that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. This is Paul's prayer now for them. After identifying who he's praying to and who he's praying for, he says what he's praying about that God would grant them. He's asking God to grant according to the riches of his glory. So now the riches of his glory is a, is a phrase we've seen already throughout Ephesians, or like it. You'll notice as we look in heaven, a prominent word is riches, isn't it? As we've been taking this tour of heaven, the word riches comes up over and over. The unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of, in, of his inheritance. God is rich. I hope you've seen that as we've been studying Ephesians. God is not stingy. God is rich, wealthy. And we're not talking about money. We're talking about grace. 
We're talking about the grace, the unlimited riches and wealth of his grace that is not stingy. It's hyperbolic. And to this, Paul appeals in his prayer. He says, God, you are a God of rich grace. I'm not praying this prayer based upon these people's righteousness or based upon these people's goodness or worthiness or what they deserve. It's not about being blessed according to what you deserve. It's according to your grace that we've been blessed. And it's so, therefore, it's according to your grace that I pray this prayer. It's like he, he's, mining, he's mining the wealth of God. It's like a son who goes up to a rich father and says, Hey, Dad, can you spot me $5,000? You know, you're so rich. you got so much money. You can easily afford this. He's appealing to the father's wealth. And so Paul appeals to God according to the riches of his grace. It's important to see that too. When we pray, what do we appeal to in God when we pray? And when we ask him to grant us things. What do we appeal to? God, I've been good today. Please reward me with a new car. You know? <laughs> no. We don't appeal to anything in us because we don't have riches of anything good. But we appeal to the riches of his glory. And I believe the riches of his glory is the riches of his grace. The glory that he has of his grace. He appeals to that. And here's what he prays for. Or excuse me, one more thing. Matthew Henry says this. The riches of his glory are answerable to the great abundance of grace, mercy, power, which reside in God and is his glory. His glory is his grace. That is what makes God so glorious. The riches of his mercy and grace. Paul prays that they would be strengthened because they are weak. You catch that? God strengthened them. Why would he pray that unless they were weak? Do we think we're strong? Do we think we don't need this? He's praying for everybody, by the way. Not just so-and-so, but everybody. God strengthened them because they're weak. We're naturally weak. And he says, strengthen them in the inner man. So a person might look strong on the outside. I'm not referring to myself. A person might look strong on the outside. They might look really tough, but inwardly they're weak. And inwardly and spiritually, they have no strength. And to this, Paul is praying, God, strengthen them on their, in their inner man by your Holy Spirit. Strengthen them because they're weak. And I don't know about you, but this is a good prayer for me you want to pray it for me, please do. I need that. I know I'm weak on the inside, and I know I need God's strengthening there. It's a, it's a perfect prayer for me. Do you feel weak? Do you feel strong? If you feel strong, give glory to God. If you feel weak, then ask for prayer, or pray to God according to his grace that he'd strengthen you. And it's by his spirit, and I, like, I love this because whenever you see spirit, Whenever you see God is doing something by his spirit or he's asked to do something by his spirit, how do you interpret that? You should always interpret that, or usually, I believe, you should interpret that. I'm not going to say always. It might be an exception, but you should interpret that as not by my strength or by my power. So, Lord, that you would do it, that you would strengthen them by your spirit, with might by their spirit. I'm not praying that they would strengthen themselves. That's the idea. That's the contrast. He's not saying, God, knock them over the side of the head that they would toughen up. But by your spirit and not by their power, but by your power, God, fill them with might. Fill them with might by your power. Let your, your might and your strength be in them. That, verse 17. Now we take another step up this staircase. So the first one is God grant them to be strengthened inside by your spirit. That Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. That's kind of a funny thing to pray because doesn't Christ already dwell in their hearts by faith? <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be part of the family of God, right? 
But Paul's not praying that Christ would dwell in their hearts for the first time. The word can be taken, the word dwell can be taken in the Greek to mean just that Christ would abide and settle down in their hearts by faith. The opposite of being transient. So that it's the idea of settling down. That their faith, the strengthening pertains to their faith. It's their faith that is the weak thing. And God strengthened them inside by their faith that Christ might settle down in their hearts by faith. Or that their faith would apprehend and believe Christ, that he dwells there. And the idea carries on in the next part, rooted and grounded. That's the idea, rooted and grounded. Paul and, and Peter frequently say that you'd be established in the truth, or that you'd be established in faith, or established in love, or established in the gospel, established in Christ. This is the idea here. It's not that he'd come in and dwell, but that you would be established, rooted, grounded in that which you believe. That you wouldn't be no more tossed to and fro. This is what he's going to talk about in the next chapter. So this prayer really carries on over into the next chapter. If you notice with me in chapter 4, this is the feel of, of what he prays here, where Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 4, Paul says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. By the way, remember, this is a corporate prayer. So Paul is praying that in the corporate body, Christ would settle down. So he might have, he might have been rooted and established in some, but he's praying that he would be rooted and established in all. And so in verse 13 of chapter 4, he says, till we all come in the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children See, this is the idea. They're children. He wants them to grow up. That we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in him into all things, which is the head, even Christ. And then he goes on to talk about how every member nourishes itself in love. So you can see the overtones from his prayer. It's the idea of maturing. This is Christian maturity, brothers and sisters. This is Christian maturity, that Christ may settle down in our hearts and we would be rooted and grounded in love. He's praying that they would be established and grow up. That's what he's praying for that they'd not be tossed to and fro. Strengthen their faith. Strengthen their faith, O God, by your Spirit. Do you need your faith to be strengthened? The one who gives faith can strengthen it. The Holy Spirit can strengthen your faith. Do you believe God can do that? Do you believe he's able to strengthen your faith? To help you see Christ more clearly, that you would be rooted and grounded in love? Believe it. You can pray for one another. You can pray to God according to his grace that he'd strengthen you in that. And rooted and grounded in love. The word rooted carries two ideas. It carries the idea of being strengthened. First of all, a tree that is strong in its roots doesn't get blown over in the wind. It's not going to get uprooted. Also, roots are nourishing as well. The roots go down and they draw nourishment for the tree. And so there's a rooting in love. And I'll tell you, when we are rooted in love, and some people ask, well, is this God's love or is it just love amongst ourselves? Well, you can't separate those two. Because if it is love amongst ourselves, then God's love is, uh, is, is there. You can't have love for one another without being rooted in the love of Christ for you, right? So whatever the case is, this is talking about being rooted in Christ's love. And as I believe it will be very clearly evident, that's what he's talking about in the next few verses. But as we get rooted in love, that is, as we believe God loves us and what he did for us, and not just that he loves us, but what kind of love that he has for us, we will be rooted 
nourished by that to love other, each other and unshakable as we know his love. You guys follow me? What are you saying? This is his prayer. Root them in love. He says now in the last portion of the prayer, verse 18 and 19 really go together. But he talks now about the love of God. The love of God that he wants us to see. He takes up two verses here explicitly on this. And in verse 18, he begins by saying that you may be able to comprehend. In the Greek, it actually means that you may be strong to comprehend. So connect that verse with the strengthening of verse 16. This is essentially what his prayer is right here. He's saying, God, strengthen them by your spirit that they may be strong to comprehend. This is the prayer right here. The whole essence. This is the climactic prayer of Paul in Ephesians after taking us on the tour of heaven. This is important. Seeing the love of God is important. Okay? And I know many many of us have in the past and many Christians think that's not as so important. What's more important is that we tithe, you know, or go to church, or don't do that, or don't do this. This is, I suggest, the most important thing of all, right here. The apostolic prayer is that all the saints would be strengthened to know the love of God, to comprehend with all the saints. Notice again, all the saints are in view. This isn't a solo thing. This isn't a solo operation because we're not complete without one another. Do we have that mindset? No one's left behind. Do we have that mindset? Do we see? Do we want everyone to know the love of Christ together? And if let's say God does strengthen us, let's say God strengthens us here at All Saints Church to know the love of Christ. Are we content with that? Are we like, thank you, God, game over, let's go home? Or do we think, no, it's not enough. Let's get on our knees and pray that God would strengthen all the saints everywhere with this. We need to break out of just, okay, I've got my uh, insurance policy. I see it now. I'm okay. I can just retire, you know. No. To know the love of Christ with all the saints, and this is the important part now. Now, most of us acknowledge God loves us. That he loves us. But the whole essence of this prayer is not that we might know that God loves us. The whole essence of this prayer is that we might know how much God loves us. That's the whole essence of this prayer. How much? What is the breadth and the depth and the height and the length of the love of Christ? And that's what he says in verse 19, that you might know the love of Christ. Not that he loves, but how he loves. What kind of love Christ loves us with. Do you follow? How many of you feel like you know sufficiently well how much Christ loves you and God loves you? I mean, we might, how many of you know God loves you? You know, okay. Yeah, Paul gets that, okay. He's talking to believers. There are people in the world that don't know that, okay? That's not, I'm not downplaying that. There are people that don't know Christ, and they don't know that God loves them. They don't know what Christ did for them on the cross. But here he's talking to believers, and he wants us to know how much, how far, how deep, what kind of love it is that he loves us with. And in seeing that, we will be mature. Paul was totally taken up with the love of God. I'm a great fan of the Apostle Paul. I just really look up to him. I love to read about him. I love to read biographies on him and his writings. 
Um, if I could say one thing about Paul, it's that he was, like, one thing that he was totally taken up with was the love of God. I mean, there's lots of things he was about, but all of those things were rooted in the knowledge of the love of Christ for him. All of those things. I mean, he was about a lot of things. He got, he got excited about a lot of things. But they were all, his great motivation and stimulator was the love of Christ. That was what motivated him. Do we believe, like Paul, that it's the love of God that is the great stimulator? Do we believe that? How are we as believers to be motivated to do things? And I think that lately, Christians have looked for stimulation and motivation in all the wrong places. Okay? So, we, we think, well, we need to motivate people and get people committed. You know, we need to get people committed and motivated. We need to see people, you know, the, the church isn't doing enough. We need to do all these things more. So what we're going to do is we're going to lay down the law. We're going to start preaching law, hellfire and damnation. You know, we're going to preach that. If you don't keep the commandments, you're going to go to hell. You know, that will mo- motivate people. <laughs> no, it won't. <laughs> and we talk to a lot of LDS people on the campuses, and what they say to us is, yeah, but if, if you don't have to work to go to heaven and you're not going to go to hell, then why would you do anything then? You know? why, would you, why would you even want to? I mean, why wouldn't you just go out and sin all the time if, you don't, if, if there's no heaven and hell in the picture? See, what motivates them? Commandments and rewards and punishments. And I simply ask, well, can you think of another reason to do anything besides just the fear of hell or the reward of heaven? And usually they can. (laughs) Proving the point. There's a greater motivation in life than just law. God does not want us as Christians just to live our lives because the commandment tells us so. Or because if I don't do it, I'm not going to go to heaven. Or if I don't do it, I'm going to go to hell. And that is what motivated Paul. Paul did not travel after he was converted to Christ on the road to Damascus. He did not risk his life and travel and preach the gospel because he was afraid he was going to go to hell. He didn't do it. He didn't feel like, my goodness, I'm going to go to hell if I don't do this. Or I'm not going to go to heaven if I don't do this. That's not what he believed. It's not what he believed. But Paul believed that the love of Christ was enough to motivate him. I want to just give you a, a little feast of scripture here on the love of Christ as the great stimulus. Just listen to this. And this is not exhaustive because I can't take up all our time, but the love, of gro- the love of God is the great stimulus for all things that is Christian. For evangelism, the love of God is the stimulus. This is Paul's, this is 2 Corinthians, what the Bible says about the love of Christ and evangelism. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. What that, this, by the way, is in, in the context of Paul's evangelistic uh, motivation. What he, he's talking about evangelism. He's talking about why he does what he does. And he says it right here. The love of Christ compels us because we judge that he died for everybody. The love of Christ compels us. For sanctification, you think, well, well, okay, I can understand if Jesus died for everyone and loves them, okay, I can understand evangelism. What about just living our life and, and why should I live my life for God? if I don't have to. Well, sanctification, here's Galatians 2.20, one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. It says, Paul, Paul again says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How did he live? By the faith of Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him. That's how he lived. Believing that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him was enough for him to live on. The Apostle John, Revelation 1, 5 and 6, for worship, for worshiping God. What's to motivate us there? 
Revelation 1, 5 and 6, the Apostle John writes, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He's compelled to worship God unto him who loved us, he says. The love of God, when we see it, when we are strengthened inside to see and know his love, then we shall worship. For overcoming, what about overcoming? What about when we're being persecuted and people coming at us with guns? Can, what, shouldn't other things motivate us, like hell at that point? No? No, in all these things, Paul says, Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's what he says in all these things. And that, it's that wonderful passage, he says, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Heights and our depths and our lengths and our angels, our principalities, persecutions, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He says the same thing in Romans 5, 5, for perseverance and hope. What gives us perseverance and hope is the love of God. He says this, not only, but we glory in tribulations also. We glory in tribulations, knowing tribulations works patience, patience, experience, experience, hope. And hope makes not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us perseverance in tribulation and what will give a person hope the love of god will give you hope i that is what gives me hope not the saying that if i keep the commandments i'm going to make it to heaven god will love me if no that's not the kind of love that gives me hope the kind of love that gives me hope is the love that the holy spirit shows me the free love of god given to me in christ at the cross first john chapter 4 verse 18 what will give us peace? John says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. You need peace? You need to know the love of God for you. First John 3.16, well, what will motivate us to love each other and love the brethren? The love of God. He says here, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See? Man, we have such a lack of love in our church. I need to start preaching the commandments. No, you need to start preaching the love of God. You need to start preaching the cross of Jesus who laid his life down for you. While you were a sinner and unworthy and undeserving, God laid his life down for you and teaches you to love and lay down your life for the brothers, even those ones who don't deserve it. So, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, what will give us unity as a body? If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, and if any comfort of love in Christ, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. You need unity. You remind people of the love that they have in God and from God. What about a healthy marriage? Well, we've got marital issues. The love of Christ is the answer. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's the great stimulus for a healthy marriage. What about waiting for the second coming of Jesus? Is that a completely uh, removed issue? 2 Thessalonians 3.5 The Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the patient waiting for Christ. How do we wait for him? Why do we wait for him? Why do we eagerly look for him? Why do we endure and be patient throughout all the things we have to go through waiting for Christ? Because he loved us. May the Lord direct our hearts into his love that we might patiently wait for him and long for his appearing, to see him, the one whom we love. And finally, back in Ephesians 3.19, the love of God, the love of God explicitly stated here is what fills us with the fullness of God. Now, that's the biggest thing that is on the list. 
Do you want to be filled with all the fullness of God? Here's what Paul says is the way to do that. To know his love. To know his love is to be filled with all the fullness of God. And at this point, it might be fair to ask, well, what is the love of God? What is love? What is his love and how big is it? Not just that he loves, but what is it? And as I was thinking about this, it's hard to define the love of God. And I can't just say it, you know, and oh, okay, now we all got it. Because it is so big. It's bigger than our vocabulary. Paul says, it passes knowledge. It passes knowledge. If you think you know how much God loves you, you don't know how much God loves you. It passes knowledge. It's like outer space. Okay? We cannot know the love of God exhaustively. But that doesn't mean we can't know it truly and that it is huge. We might not ever exhaustively know outer space, but that doesn't mean we can't go to outer space and be amazed by it and know what it is in some sense, right? This is what the love of God is. When you think of the love of God, think of outer space. So vast, so huge, mind-blowing, and yet we can know something about it. It passes knowledge, but he wants you to know about it. And is love just benevolence, as sometimes we're told? Is it just benevolence? I have a friend who says, I love everybody. I don't wish any evil on anybody. Is that the love that God has for us? Is that the great stimulus? Do you know that God doesn't wish any evil for you? It's true, but that's not all the love of God is. And as I was thinking about it, and this is just my crude stab at the love of God, or what love is, period. But if I could take three words and put them together, that maybe scratches the surface on what love is. But love is consideration and, importantly, affection and benevolence, all mashed into one. The point is this, is that God doesn't just up there sort of wish the good for everybody, but he actually is affectionate towards us. When you think about the people that you love, you know, you can lament the fact you don't love people as often or as much as you should, but think about those people who you really do love. There's, there's affection there, isn't there? It's not just benevolence. You're not just, I want what's good for them. That's true, it's there, but you want what's good for them because you have affection. You're, you're actually moved when you think about them and you consider them. It's hard for me to describe. I think it's hard for all of us to describe, though we experience it, what this love is. But this is what Paul wants you to know. God actually has affection for you. God actually has affection for you. You think he just died on the cross, not really affectionate about you? He just kind of died because that's the good thing to do that would pragmatic, you know, or utilitarian. This will bring the greatest good for the greatest people. I'll just die on the cross for everybody. Or is it more affectionate? It's more personal. It's more personal. What would happen if we lived our lives in the affection of God? How would that change us? And as we've talked about grace, grace isn't just free, it's favor. What if we lived our life knowing that God actually is favorable and pleased with us and affectionate towards us? Now, how do you know that? And here's the thing, in closing, how do you know God is affectionate and considers you Because love cannot be seen unless it's demonstrated. You might have all the affection in the world for somebody and they'll never know it unless you express it somehow. So love is demonstrated and that's how we know it. It's demonstrated. The ultimate demonstration of God's love, because there are many, but the ultimate demonstration of God's love 
it tells us in the Bible is when Jesus died for us on the cross and laid his life down for us. God demonstrated his love, his affection for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God actually loves you and cares for you. That he sees you as this pitiful sinner who deserves to go to hell, a rebel, and yet he loves you and has affection and cares about you, considers you so much so that he lays his life down on the cross. The only way that you could be saved is for the shedding of blood. It's for Christ taking upon himself your sins that you deserve to pay for, all your sins, past, present, and future, and putting them away by his sacrifice on the cross. And we might know the fact of that, but Paul wants us to not know just what it is, but why that he loves you. The dimensions of his love in verse 18, the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. There's been lots of explanations of what is Paul meaning by that? The wonderful Puritan John Bunyan, he believed, as I believe, that it's describing the, the breadth of God's love superabounding the breadth of our sin and the depth of our depravity and our, our position as a sinner the love of God even deeper than the depth of our sin. And the lengths, how far away we were from God. God's arm wasn't too short for us. His love wasn't like, well, I'll save those who are this close, but I won't save those who are that far. The length of his love and the heights of his love too. John Bunyan said these obstacles in the way of relationship with God, the walls we put up, the sin, the barriers, God leaps over them with his love and snatches us because he loves us. He goes over the obstacles to get to you. He goes into the pit to find you. He spans the globe in the breadth to redeem you. Isn't this amazing? Yes, Carolyn. For God so loved the world. I'm not sure which verse you're referring to. Okay. The love of Christ. So this is maturity brothers and sisters, is, is being strengthened in our, in our hearts to know his love, what love it is. And I think our, love, our vision of his love is stingy. I think that's why we've experienced such stingy Christianity. But this is the apostolic prayer. And this is the prayer that I pray for all of us here and I hope we would begin to pray for one another. Daily, even. God would strengthen us. I remember last time we looked at Paul's prayer, I gave the challenge that whenever you think of one of your brothers or your sisters, you know, just think of them throughout the day or their name comes up. Pray for them. Just doesn't have to be long. Just pray that God would bless them with wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that they might know what they have in Christ. Right? Let me give that challenge again. Please continue to do that. Add to that prayer, after you pray, God, that they might know all that they have in you, that they've been forgiven and blessed and all that. Add to that, that they might know your love and why God did that for them. That they might know the depths and the lengths and the breadth, the dimensions of that love. That we together as a body might be filled with the fullness of God as his temple. Verse 19, I believe, is corporate. It's not individual that together we might, as the temple of God, be filled with that fullness of who God is, to contain him and to praise him, knowing who he is, giving him glory. I think if we knew this, we would praise him in a far greater way than we do. I've probably gone over time, but the last, 
let's just finish so we can move on to chapter 4 next week. But chapter, or verse 20 and 21 is the doxology, the closing of this section. Come again full circle, praising God, giving him praise for what he's done and for how he's done it and why he's done it. And I, I think verse 20 is very fitting because he says, to him who is able, now he points to God, because as I've been sharing these things and if I read these, as I read these things, I feel, God, who's sufficient for these things? I don't think I can pull my socks up and just do this. I don't think I can just force myself to believe it. I just don't think, it's so beyond me. It's so, it's outer space. It's, it's beyond what I can ask or think. But God is able to do it. Like, if you feel discouraged when you talk about outer space, like, we're never going to know it, you know? When you feel discouraged about the love of God, like, man, I feel like my, my vision of God's love is so low, and I feel like I'm always going to be low. But if you're, if, you're de- if you're sad, if you're depressed about that, it's probably because you're thinking that it's in you to rise up and figure it out. But Paul says, to him who's able... He's able to do it in you, brothers and sisters. He's able to do it in you as an individual. God is able to strengthen you by his spirit, to show you his love, and as a body, he's able to do it. And that's the vision now after this prayer. To God who's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or think according to the power that works in us. In verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. To him alone be the glory, because to him alone, he's the one who does all the work. To him be the glory throughout all ages. Paul wrote that in the first century. That means God was glorified in the church in every generation. And now it's our generation. Paul, or God is glorified and will be glorified in our age also, and in the age to come, world without end. Isn't that amazing? By the church. Can you imagine for all eternity, it's you and I that will demonstrate who God is and bring him glory. That's a wonderful thing to be a part of. So praise God. Praise God for what he's done for us. Praise God.